0: I'd like to begin, as we usually do this morning, by reading from the scriptures that I would like to unfold. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes nine thirteen through chapter 10, verse 20. We'll begin uh, there. Lord willing, uh, we'll finish the book of Ecclesiastes uh, three more Sundays. We'll be in the book, finishing it just before the end of the year. So that's the plan. Um, You'll notice a couple things about this morning. One, uh, we didn't read from the Psalms. Last year we took December off and we're going to do that again uh, this year during December so we have more time to sing our songs of the incarnation. We'll get back to Psalm reading again in January. I think we have 14 or 15 more to go. So uh, we'll finish maybe before Easter which will be uh, just great. Thursday, the 28th, you were celebrating with your family, I hope Thanksgiving, eating some turkey on that day. Ed and Judy McLaughlin had a special reason to celebrate that day. It was their 60th wedding anniversary. So congratulations to Ed and Judy on uh, God's grace. We give thanks to God for both uh, Ed and Judy and his kindness uh, to them. Now, Ecclesiastes starting in Uh, Chapter 9, verse 13. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered the poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense. They show everyone how stupid they are. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed. But skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly, at the end, they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? The toil of fools wearies them. They do not know the way to town. How can you not know the way to town? Woe to the land whose king was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through laziness the rafters sag. Because of idle hands the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom, because a bird in the sky may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you say. On Sunday, October twenty second, 1939, C.S. Lewis was pre- was asked to preach the Sunday evening sermon at a church on the campus of Oxford University. There was a lot of university students there in the church that evening, and Lewis came to answer a burning question. Did you notice the date? It was October 22nd, 1939. It was was over 70 years ago. Seven weeks before Lewis went to preach this sermon, Germany invaded Poland and France and Great Britain declared war on Germany. This is the beginning of World War II. And Lewis himself, he was a veteran of World War I, he ascended the pulpit to answer a basic question. Here's the question. Why should Oxford University students bother to study, bother to go to classes while the world was at war? His sermon was called Learning in Wartime. Listen to how he began. A university is a society for the pursuit of learning. As students, you will be expected to make yourselves or to start making yourselves into what the Middle Ages called clerks, into philosophers, scientists, scholars, critics, or historians. And at first sight, this seems to be an odd thing to do during a great war. What is the use of beginning a task which we have so little chance of finishing? Or even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed, how can we, continue to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance? you understand the question he's asking? It's a good question. The world is at war. Why are we studying these things? History and philosophy and science like this. Uh, Lewis answered the question in a number of ways. One of the things he said about war, though, is that war is not really an interruption of normal life. War actually is an aggravation of conditions that always exist. There is always chaos in the world, always trouble, always conflicts. Let me quote him again. I think it is important to try to see the present calamity in a true perspective. The war creates no absolutely new situation. It uh, it simply aggravates the permanent situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived at the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. I think that's an idea that the author of Ecclesiastes, who calls himself the teacher, would agree with. The world has never been normal. I know that it was Thanksgiving just a few days ago. We're now officially in the Christmas holiday season. You may not be paying as much attention in the last few days, and that's probably good for your mental health, but the world is full of madness. It was full of madness before you took off for Thanksgiving. It will be full of madness again when you come back to reality. There's madness in Syria and madness in Hong Kong and madness in Bolivia and madness in Venezuela and madness, more madness than we ever want to know about in Washington, D.C. And this passage I just read is about walking in wisdom in this mad, mad world. I want to consider under three headings. First, we're going to do is we're going to talk about the madness in the world. I'm interested in how the teacher characterizes the madness of the world. And then secondly, we're going to talk about wisdom in the mad world. How do you walk in wisdom in this mad, mad world? What does he say for us? And then finally, I want to finish by showing you how Ecclesiastes 10 helps us to celebrate Christmas. It's an odd place to end up in this Old Testament chapter that doesn't mention God's name. But we're going to get there to uh, Christmas. First, let's think about this, the fact that this is a mad world. This is the conditions in which we live with. And I want you to think with me about how the teacher forms this idea of the madness of the world. One of the chief problems that we have when we come to this passage, if we approach it, is finding out if there's any sort of central idea or central theme or central idea to the passage chapter 10 is really a series of proverbs and you know proverbs are short wisdom sentences and they don't often have uh, a relation to one another the whole book of proverbs is just sentence after sentence and they're not really necessarily related And, and this is the chapter of proverbs are they related at all They do seem to be connected, and the connection seems to be politics. I don't know if you noticed that as I I read. How many times uh, the teacher talks about kings and princes? Did you notice that? So verse 14 of chapter 9 is about a king who invades a city. Uh, Verse 4 of chapter 10 is about a ruler's anger. Verse 5 is about a ruler's error. Verse 7 is about uh, princes on foot like slaves verse 16 is about a foolish king verse 20 is about reviling the king this is a world about the mad mad this is a passage about the mad mad world of politics some of you i know you're tempted to think this you think this is funny that um, verse 2 of chapter 10 has to be about politics look what it says the heart of the wise inclines to the right but the heart of the fool inclines to the left right of course that's clearly about politics not not quite. He's not talking about the right in terms of being conservative or Republican. The left, not. Um, the, 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 in, in the ancient world, they had this, this notion that the right side was the wiser side and the left side was the more foolish side. That, that's just it's cultural. The whole thing's about politics, though, about kings and about foolish kings. Uh, in fact, a particular type of king. This, uh, this book... <clears throat> is about a king who is not a good king, and not a wise king. Uh, this is about an impetuous, an irritable, a selfish, a foolish king. And by pointing that out, I, I hope that I, I'm able to help you understand how this passage might apply to your life. We don't live in a kingdom, but every single one of us has an exposure at some point in time to an impetuous, irritable, selfish, foolish leader. You have a boss like that. You've had a a professor like that. Maybe you have a parent like that, or a coach, or a president. You know someone like this. Someone like what? Well, someone who's easily provoked Verse 4 is, again, about the ruler's anger. If a ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your post. It says, to be calm. What should you do? Be calm. It reminds me of Psalm 15.1. Remember what that Psalm 15.1 says? A gentle answer turns away wrath. Um, it, do you remember uh, John McCain? When John McCain was running for president, there was a lot of talk about his temperament. Does he have the right temperament to be president? Because um, he was too hot-headed. It is no credit to be a leader to a, la- to a leader to be hot-headed. This foolish king is hot-headed. The teacher has in mind the sort of king who puts foolish people in places of power. Um, He he doesn't know how to surround himself with competent people. So verse 6, this is the ruler's error. Fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. Now, one of the things we should understand from this passage is that the teacher here, he puts wisdom, nobility, and riches in the same class He's talking about wisdom, but he puts nobility and riches in the same class. Not always. He knows. He knows it's possible for there to be a rich but poor man. He writes about that in chapter 9, doesn't he? But just in general, he's putting rich and nobility and wisdom together in the same category. That's why he talks about how bad it is that the rich, who are supposed to be wise, are occupying low places. That's a sign of, of bad leadership. There's fools in positions of power. There's a fool on the throne, and he surrounds himself with other fools. Then in verse 16, he laments what happens when a king, uh, someone comes to power who has no uh, experience of leadership and who's lazy. It's interesting in our culture. So what will be one of the the candidates, a candidate's greatest... appeals to the people he'll say i'm not one of those insiders i'm an outsider and i'm going to go and fix things because i'm an outsider and i can fix things all those insiders have ruined things and the teacher would say "Eh, be careful about that sometimes it's good to have an insider who knows how things work who can maybe fix things or at least get things done because he knows how things work The laziness of the king is referred to in verse uh, 16. The princes are feasting in the morning. Morning is not for feasting. Morning is for working. Get up and work and feast afterwards. uh, After your work is done. And if you're lazy, verse 18, that's why the rafters are sagging. No one's maintained the roof. The house is leaking. Part of the problem, verse 19 is interesting. I'm not sure what to do with verse 19. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. Now, that sounds a little bit like what the teacher has said before, right? He's talked about, uh, in the midst of this broken world, enjoying the blessings that God brings. So, maybe. But then he says, money is the answer for everything. Does that sound like the teacher? I don't know. Maybe on the one hand, he's saying, you know, in this world, money, it's real. You you need money to survive, and so you should make some money. You should save some money. You should be prepared to spend money because it's necessary. Or maybe more likely, verse 19, he's quoting those stupid princes, princes those fools who have been made princes. He's quoting them. A feast is for laughter, and wine makes makes life merry, and money is good for everything. If we have any problem, just spend money. That'll fix all of our problems. Um, There are politicians to whom the answer for every problem is more money, right? Uh, We can fix everything with more money. Not sure the teacher would agree with that. It's a mad, 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 mad world and you can tell how bad it is, how mad it is by the bad leadership. A bad leadership can ruin a country, it can ruin a company, it can ruin a church, bad leadership can ruin a family. Now there's two observations I want to make about this before we move on. The first one is I want to think about how the nature of madness, this nature of madness that he observes matches what the rest of the Bible says about humanity, we'll talk about that, and then... I want to talk about why the teacher thinks that focusing on the king is the best way to talk about the madness of the world. Why there? Why does he go to the palace? Well, first, the madness of humanity in general. We're used to this in the Bible. We're used to this in the book of Ecclesiastes. We always end up here somewhere. The world itself has gone mad. The Bible's diagnosis is that this madness is wrapped up in our human revolt against God. It starts in the first few pages of the Bible and, and, and uh, it continues. God speaks and we react against it. God speaks and we question it. God speaks and we ignore it. God speaks and we deny it. He's the God of the universe. He created, He defines reality and to deny the reality that God describes is a form of madness in itself. God says, the sun is bright and human beings have said, no it's not. God says, water is wet. And human beings have said, no, it's not. And we've been doing this from the beginning. Listen to how two of the prophets describe this. So, um, it's a mad world. Jeremiah 8 tells us about this. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Jeremiah the prophet would say, you know, birds know when it's time to migrate. They know this. They get up and fly. They go south in the fall. They go north in the spring. They know it. It's embedded in their DNA. It's, it's in their instincts. It's the pattern of their lives that they have lived since they were young. They know. But human beings, Jeremiah says, we don't know. Are you madder than a stork? Worse off than a dove? The birds at least have a little bit of wisdom. They at least know enough to live in light of who God is and the world that God made. Human beings, not so much. And then look at what Isaiah the prophet says. Isaiah says in 1-2, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is what God says. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Huh. God has the worst kids ever. You think your kids are bad? (laughs) Get a hold of God's kids. They're the worst. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a nation whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Oxens know, Isaiah says. Donkeys know... Your dog knows what she needs to do in order to get food. Before the food is set, before you dog, you have to sit. And your dog knows that. Your dog is that smart. (sighs) But we human beings don't know. You need wisdom in this world because the world is full of madness, rebellion against God, spurning of His commands. And the madness extends all the way up to the throne in the palace of the most powerful king and all the way down to the depths of the human heart. It's a mad, mad world. It's systemically mad. It's personally bad. It's globally mad. It's locally mad. Now, why does a teacher write this? Uh, way about kings, so we understand where we, we we track with him when he talks about the humanity in general being broken. We we are used to this in the Bible. Why does he think that kings are the best way to talk about that? Well, uh, for most of human history, people have been led by kings and queens, or by dictators of king-like power. But we in our country don't have kings. Uh, we live in a representative democracy. But the usefulness of kings to describe human foolishness in general hangs on this basic idea that does run all the way through the Bible. In the Bible, the king is not just a political leader. He is the representative of the entire nation. You are tied to the king in a way that you are not tied. In Israel, you would be tied to the king or the ancient world. You'd be tied to the king in a way that you're not tied to the governor of Pennsylvania or the president of the United States. The king is your leader. He's your example. He's your representative. He's your spokesman. Your life is bound up in his life. You believe what the king believes. You worship the God the king worships. If the king is at war, you are at war. If the king is a fool, guess what? You're getting splashed with his folly. There's a connection here that's somewhat different than our own experience. The Bible makes a lot of this connection uh, when it speaks about our relationship to Adam and our relationship to Jesus. In Adam, Paul writes in Romans, when he sinned, we all sinned. We are physically tied to him because he's father of us all, and so our guilt before God is bound up in in his guilt before God. And the same logic applies to Jesus. All who are spiritually tied to Jesus by faith are forgiven in him. You are born on Team Adam with King Adam as your sovereign. You can be born again into Team Jesus. With King Jesus as your sovereign. It's entirely appropriate that the teacher would talk about the madness of the world in terms of kings, because the king stands for us all. Now, let's move on and talk about walking in wisdom in this mad, mad world. How do we navigate this mad world? There's a number of observations in these proverbs. If you were to go through the text, you might number them or list them differently than I do, but I want to suggest four things to you this morning that he says about walking in this mad, mad world. First, he says, you should anticipate the presence of fools. You should anticipate the presence of fools. The Bible knows this. You probably know this too. The world is full of fools. They are in your school. They work for your company. They play on your team. They belong to your club. They're members of our church. You probably ate turkey with some of them on Thursday. The world is full of fools, and the teacher seems to think that fools are somewhat obvious. Did you notice that? Verse three: Even as the fools walk along the road, they lack sense, and they show everyone they show everyone how stupid they are. Fools—they don't even know how to walk down the street. Uh, drive in a snowstorm in Lancaster County and see how that works, right? You can tell a fool by how he's walking down the road. Hmm. Well, we're going to look at this verse again in a minute, but here's how to recognize a fool. Verse 12. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. They talk and talk and talk. At the beginning their words are folly, and they don't get any better. At the end, they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. And here's what they talk about, the future. No one knows when it's coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? Well, fools think they know, and they talk and talk and talk about it endlessly. Um, verse 15, <laughs> Their many words are not matched by wisdom. They don't even know the way to town. Everyone who lives in the country knows the way to town. If you live in the country, you know five ways to get to town. You know the best way to get to town that will get you to the grocery store as opposed to the way to town that will get you to the bank. Everybody knows how to get to town except fools. They don't even know that. So they talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and have nothing to say. Fools are everywhere. Learn to recognize them. Don't be influenced by them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't listen to them. When you eat lunch in your cafeteria, you are surrounded by fools. Trust me. And they want to claim power over your life to dictate to you how you should act and what you should say and what you should wear and what you should do. Don't give them that authority over your life. Recognize the folly for what it is. Don't, don't be influenced by them. Let I me mean, think about it for a moment here. Who's, who is the greatest fool in your life? The most significant fool in your life? Maybe you're thinking of someone at work, or maybe, and this is painful, you're thinking of someone in your family, someone that you love, or a classmate. Don't give that person as much power as they want to claim over you. Now, second here, notice this about walking in wisdom in this mad, mad world. Understand, he says, secondly, how wisdom is treated. Understand how wisdom is treated. In verses 13 and 15, the teacher uh, tells this story about a battle in chapter 9, about a battle. Um, It seems like a true story. Verse 15, he starts, there was once a small city with only a few people in it. Uh, Scholars have spent hours and hours trying to figure out what city he's actually talking about. They, they make arguments about what nobody knows. Uh, contrast. There's a small city with a few people in it, and there's a powerful king with a great enough army to come and lay siege to the city. What was he trying to get in this city? I have no idea. Why was he after this small city? I don't know. But this small city had a wise man who was poor. He wasn't rich. He didn't have money, but he at least had a plan. And I'm not sure what the plan involved. Um, diplomacy, maybe, or some sort of strategy. I, I, the text doesn't tell us what he did. But he saved the day. Woohoo! And then he was completely forgotten. Oh. Um, nobody remembered him. Actually, this, tell, this passage tells us two things about how wisdom is treated. First, it tells us that wisdom is often forgotten. Wisdom is often forgotten. There's more contrast in verse 17. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. We live in a talk show world. We live in a talk show world. You can turn on the television anytime you want and you find people talking. They're often beautiful people, finely dressed people, rich people, talented people, and they talk and talk and talk, and everyone in the audience is just listening. And what really matters is what happens up on stage where the talking people are, or behind the podium where the talking people are. Those are the people to care about. Those are the people to study. Those are the people you should aspire to be like. And the talk show culture seeps into our world, and the teacher wants you to resign from the talk show world. Sign out of the system where all the attention goes toward those who can shout the loudest, who have all of the style but none of the substance. You won't find much wisdom there. Every year, uh, People Magazine dedicates an issue to the sexiest man alive. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to last year's winner. Maybe he died. Or somehow he's less sexy this year than he was last year. I just don't know. They have yet to do an episode or an issue. They have yet to do an issue, though, about the wisest man alive. Wouldn't that be good? People magazine crowns the wisest man alive. He's probably not as photogenic as the sexiest man alive. In this city that he describes, there's a poor but wise man. Go find people like that. You won't probably find them on the talk show circuit. Go find that poor, wise man and push against the inevitable encroachment of the talk show world. Wisdom is forgotten. The teacher also says that wisdom is fragile. That's another way that wisdom is treated in this world. It's fragile. Verse 18 of chapter 9. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. It just takes a little bit to ruin a lot of good. Verse 10. Dead flies can give perfume a bad smell. I don't have much experience in making perfume. I I know what a dead fly looks like. It's just a little bit of of this animal being dead can ruin your perfume. And a little folly can outweigh wisdom and honor. Wisdom is such a, a fragile thing. It can be ruined by just a little folly. Wisdom is like your reputation. It's fragile. It's fragile. Now third, the teacher says when he thinks about living in this mad world, we've talked about how wisdom is treated and we've talked about the prevalence of fools. Now the teacher says also, watch your words, watch your words. This is not... This is Old Testament wisdom literature. You should know this is coming. The Old Testament warns us all the time about your words. The Apostle James said people can tame a lot of things. You can tame a lion, a bear, you can tame a horse. You can turn a horse with a rudder, but people can't tame their tongue. This little muscle in your mouth that gets you into so much trouble. Here's another reminder about watching your words. The wise produce words, verse 12, that are gracious. Wise words are quiet words. They're gracious words. I remind you of the difference between biblical wisdom and cynicism. Cynicism often sounds wise because it doesn't trust anyone or distrust everyone. Cynics can see through people, but cynicism is cold and sharp and painful. But wisdom is warm and healing and brings wholeness. Uh, watch out in particular, verse 20 that uh, says, uh, with what you say about the king, even in quiet, private moments, because there's birds listening. Verse 20, do not revile the king, even your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom, because a bird in the sky may carry your words. Here is the ultimate whistleblower. And you know what he does? He's going to spread your words, probably on tweet, Twitter. This bird's going to tweet out what you said. I'm listening right now to a book by Andrew Clavin. This is a noisy service today. I'm not sure what it is. Thanksgiving Day, people don't know what's happening. You've had too much tryptophan and you're clueless, okay? It's all right. Maybe that was the bird tweeting out somebody's (laughs) words. Well, I'm listening to a book by Andrew Claven and uh, in, in, there's a scene that Andrew Claven has with a washed-up Hollywood actress and she's, she's been beaten down by light, but she's uh, very angry in this scene. She's angry at her assistant and she just lets her assistant have it. She just starts yelling at this woman, uh, her assistant, and the, the, Andrew Claven very well pictures this this beautiful, aging Hollywood actress and she's just yelling at her assistant, her other plain Jane assistant, just tearing her apart, digging into her with her words, And the assistant stands there in public taking this beating. She's listening to this all. And and the only uh, response that the assistant has is is one tear runs down her face. The narrator of this story knows the assistant well. And the narrator, the character in the story, knows the assistant and knows why she's crying. Why is this assistant crying? She's crying not because she's being so belittled in public But she's crying out of sympathy for this poor woman, this actress, who is so angry and so unhappy and so disappointed with life that she treats the people like this. All of her internal pain and disappointment is coming out and it makes her assistant, who is filled with gracious wisdom, cry for her. Wise words are gracious words. Wise people are gracious words people now number four here number four walking in wisdom recognize that there's no guarantees there's no guarantees how can it be any different for the wise there's no guarantee for the fools there's no the world is filled with fools often fools have power sometimes your plans don't work out that shouldn't surprise you you might verse 8 says dig a pit and fall in it you might break through a wall and and be bitten by a snake Snakes love to crawl in those little crevices of the wall. You may break in and find a snake there. Ah. You might quarry stone and have a fall on you. You might split logs and get a splinter. There's no guarantees. Wisdom still helps, of course. It teaches you to sharpen your axe, to be diligent in charming the snake before getting too close to it. But there's no guarantees. It's a mad, mad world that takes wisdom to survive. This is not good news. I wish that I could tell you that things are easier than this for the wise in the world. That, that if you're wise, uh, things will just be smooth sailing your whole life and you'll never have problems. Like the teacher doesn't think that. And it's not true. Uh, not everybody's going to have a helping hand for you. You're going to encounter corruption and laziness and incompetence. I wish it weren't that way, but that's the way life is. And in a strange way... This is a passage that helps us as we think about Christmas. Here's how we're going to finish our time together. Every year we get to this point uh, early in December uh, in the Christmas season and we begin by singing songs of longing. In order to better appreciate what happened when the Lord Jesus was born, uh, we try to enter in for just a minute to to the longing, to the hopefulness, to the expectation of the people of Israel. Our more liturgical brothers and sisters focus a great amount of time on Advent. Advent is this time of waiting or time of longing. It's to help us enter into the very dark in our imagination, enter into the very dark period of time before the Messiah came. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Remember that line? One of the verses... O come thou wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh to us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. Wisdom, wisdom. Emmanuel, when he comes, is wisdom personified. He's so wise we can talk about him as if his name is wisdom. Wisdom, your wisdom. Uh, We want you to come and order things, put things to rights, straighten things out. The things far away from us and the things nigh, the things that are close to Here's the king that the people have in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and he's a mess. Well, we're all a mess. But this is the king that that the people have. He's the king in some ways that the people deserve. He's temperamental, he's vindictive, he's foolish, he's lazy, he's wasteful. But the king who is coming, the king who is coming is wisdom personified. He's the king that we long for. In every way, he's the opposite of this king. You can take every passage here and and show how the king that is coming is better than this. He values wisdom and he can tell the difference, the king that is coming, between being loud and being right. He never lets even the tiniest bit of folly uh, destroy what is good. Those he elevates to positions of power, this king, um, uh, do their job so well that it is a credit to his wisdom that he put them in positions of power. This king only speaks words that are true. He knows exactly what's coming in the future and he is well prepared for it. He is never late and he is never rushed. He knows how to do everything. His plans always come to perfect fruition. He rules diligently, and when the work is done, his table is laden with food for all his guests to enjoy. Everyone in this king that is to come, his, everyone in his kingdom was at one point in time his enemies, and you should have heard the things they said about him. But he has won their loyalty through his own excellence. In this kingdom... Where the teacher is trying to help you survive, money's quite useful. It's not the answer for everything, but it sure helps. But in the in the coming king's kingdom, they use gold to pave the streets. And the true currency, the currency the king has used to purchase his kingdom and all his subjects, is his own blood. Peter said, "It was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. It was because of his death on the cross, the price that his father asked him to pay in our place, so that we might forgiven, be forgiven. It was because of that that he has been exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name. Every name. Someday everyone's going to bow to this King." And everyone's going to kneel and say that he is Lord. But the invitation of the Bible is to recognize the wonder of this king now, to believe in him now, to recognize that he is king and savior, the one who redeems us. So this is the season in which we enter into, just for a little bit, the longing of those who waited 2,000 years ago. It helps us realize how much we need a savior like this, a, a king like this. The way ahead is not going to be easy. The teacher will tell us that. He tells us the way things are. And seeing things as they are makes us long for the way that things will be when that great king comes again. The great king, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we are uh, grateful to you for these words that you have given us, true words. Um, You uh, speak plainly and forthrightly to us about the way that things are. The world is full of madness. We confess to you, Father, that we are part of it, and we have contributed to it by our own rebellion against you. We're so foolish. You say something is black, we say it's white. You say it's up, we say it's down. You say it's hot, we say it's cold because it doesn't matter what you say, we just don't like it. It is madness, it is madness to resist the reality that you have made and that you defined. So Lord, we confess that this mad world doesn't surprise us. We have been the type of fool you describe in Ecclesiastes 10. We have voted for the type of fool that you describe in Ecclesiastes 10. We work for the type of fool that you have described in Ecclesiastes 10. And sometimes we are that fool too. Lord, I am thankful to you uh, that you warn us. And I I do pray that you would help us, that, that you would give us grace to recognize and diminish the power of the fools that are in our lives. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Help us to see them. Help us to avoid them. Help us to love them and be gracious to them because some of them are our relatives. Thank you, Lord, that when we think about this terrible king in this chapter, we can anticipate the return of the great King, the Lord Jesus. We pray with John that you would come soon, Lord Jesus, and rescue us from this broken world, that we might be in awe of the wisdom of your sovereign rule and authority, you who do all things well. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.